In Trenton, Route 1 is a concrete colossus that cuts the city in half, diagonally southwest and northeast. All day long, the highway howls with the roar of motors and tires, and the thunder of heavy trucks. What most of those drivers don't realize is that just beneath their feet, there's another man-made highway. Today, this highway lies in stillness and darkness, unused and nearly forgotten for the better part of a century. It is a section of the Delaware and Raritan Canal, and in the last century, it too was a great artery of commerce, where smoke-belching steamboats hauled coal from the mines of Pennsylvania to the furnaces of New York. In the 1800s, this canal connected sleepy rural New Jersey to a network of trade and industry. Today, it does almost the exact opposite, providing an oasis of nature and a landscape of suburban sprawl. Aside from a few sections in Trenton and Bordentown that have been filled in or covered over, the main DNR Canal plus its 22-mile-long feeder canal are largely intact and form a 60-mile-long park, the longest and narrowest in the state. If you live in central New Jersey, the canal is probably close to your backyard, whether you realize it or not. Howard Green, research director of the New Jersey Historical Commission, puts it like this. It is one of the most beloved parks in the state, a sinewy snake-like greenway through one of the most heavily populated parts of the world. It has gone from being the machine in the garden to being the garden in the machine. It's forgotten history. Forgotten History. I'm Dickon Hyatt, and this is my co-host Joe Maskey. Hello. And today we are joined by Linda Barth and Bob Barth. Uh, Linda is the author of two books about the DNR Canal. One is called The Delaware and Raritan Canal, and the other is called The Delaware and Raritan Canal at Work, and also a children's book called The Bridge Tender's Boy that takes place on the canal. And both of them are members of the DNR Canal Watch, which is a group of people who volunteer to preserve the canal history, and Linda is the president of that organization. So welcome, Linda and Bob. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's describe why the canal was built in the first place. What situation was the United States in in the early 1830s when it came to transportation? Well, any canal built back in that period of time was needed to move heavy objects. And basically, the DNR Canal was needed to move objects from Philadelphia to New York or from the northeastern coal fields of Pennsylvania to New York. And that was its main cargo. So a canal is built because sometimes the rivers don't go where you want to go. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes the rivers are too high or too low to float the boats. So being a man-made thing, the canal is used to go where you want to go and carry heavy objects. Now, I understand that, economically speaking, this was very important because it was sometimes extremely expensive to transport heavy objects because of the underdeveloped transportation system that existed at the time. Like, one figure I read was that it would cost 10 times as much to transport something than it did to make it in the first place. Well, when the Erie Canal opened, the cost of shipping dropped 90%. Mm-hmm. Because previously, carrying things in wagons on 
practically non-existent roads was quite an arduous operation. But once the canals were open, could just float them down, much cheaper. Yeah, it was kind of like the superhighway of the early 1800s. Absolutely. And the idea really was started in a few other countries, but in England especially, where Josiah Wedgwood was having trouble with his pottery deliveries because the bumpy roads were breaking it. But by digging a canal, he was able to float his pottery right down to market. Mm-hmm. Now, there's another interesting aspect of the canal that I didn't know before and that probably most landlubbers don't know, which is about this thing called the Intracoastal Waterway which is the idea that you want to be able to sail all the way from like Massachusetts down to Georgia without ever going into the ocean. That's correct. And that if you can do that, you can avoid an extremely dangerous voyage into the Atlantic. And this is something that some of the early founding fathers thought would be very good to have because so much of our commerce took place up and down the coast. Right. Treasurer Albert Gallatin, in his internal report of how transportation suggested four places along the coast that could be made navigable, starting with Cape Cod, and one of them being New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there and are these four spits of land that if you could dig canals through them, then you could sail all the way down without ever going into the ocean. And now right? we do have the Intracoastal Waterway from Cape Cod Canal down to Florida, but here we have the missing link in New Jersey mm-hmm. because we can no longer take cargo through our canal. We can only take canoes and kayaks. Mm-hmm. Wait, so uh, in other parts of the United States besides New Jersey, the canal system is still in Absolutely. operation? Yeah. The Carolinas, Virginia, oh, Massachusetts. I did not know that. Well, actually, the intercoastal waterway is continuous from Maine to Florida. Some places, like in New Jersey now, you have to go out into the ocean. Well, you go back in at Manasquan, but you go out at Sandy Hook, and you have to be in the Atlantic for a short distance, whereas before... Uh, you at Sandy Hook, you'd go up the Raritan River, and you wouldn't have to go in the ocean. Hmm. Uh, why? Why is New Jersey the one outlier in this? Uh, in this, <laughs> because the canal system. was abandoned through navigation back in 1934, and because of that, or 32, it was. I always get that wrong. <laughs> so, after that, you have to go out into the ocean. And now but, the bridges no longer move out of the way, and the locks do not work. So, it's only used as a water transportation supply for drinking water. And it was also a national security issue because early days of the country, we were at the mercy of the British Navy who could blockade our ports. And when they did that in the War of 1812, it not only stopped our commerce from the rest of the world, but it really stopped commerce between the states even. And even later, in later wars, the canal was the perfect way to connect the Brooklyn Navy Yard and the Philadelphia Navy Yard without going into the ocean where later U-boats were. Troops mm-hmm. were transported in three wars, the Civil War, War of 1812, and World War I, mm-hmm. and using our canal. So it still could be used today if it were to be reopened. So that's an overview of why the canal was so important. Um, it, it also played a role in the early development of Trenton. Could you go into that a little bit? Bling, in 1849, brought his Pennsylvania operation to Trenton because he mm-hmm. had canal transport, river transport, railroad, and he was right at the ironworks. Mm-hmm. So it was the perfect location for him and other industries. Once the government got their act together to actually build the canal, which took a long time, uh, how did they actually go about doing it? Well, actually, if I may correct you, the government did not build the canal. It was mm-hmm. a private company. Mm-hmm. They let stock out, and they got money from the stock. And unfortunately, 
This is a late-built canal, and they got their uh, approval from the government to build it in mm -hmm. 1830. Well, railroads were already beginning to be developed at that period of time. So the day they let stock out for the DNR Canal, they did not sell out. And in fact, Robert F. Stockton got his father-in-law to buy out most of the stock so they could meet their deadline of selling out most of the stock by a certain date. And later on, it was the Camden and Amboy Railroad, which was chartered by the state the same day. They sold out their stock in a couple hours. Mm -hmm. A year later, in 1831, they combined and became the joint companies. And that helped them both. And it basically gave them a monopoly crossing this, the waste of New Jersey because no one could build the canal within 10 miles of the DNR Canal. So building the canal, once they got their charter, once they got their money, they had to get people to build it. And you had crews of a 1,000 men probably involved. And it was all pick and shovel, scoops, mules pulling scoops and things like that. It was all hand dug. took four years. Who were the people who dug the canal? Mainly local people. Mm -hmm. mainly local farmers in the winter when they're not busy on the farm, uh, whoever needed a job, and it got to the point where they needed more people, so they actually tried to get people from the Eastern uh, uh, or Western Europe to come over here and, and help work with it. So people say the Irish built the canal. Well, that's not totally true, but a lot of them did. A lot of them mm -hmm. worked on the canal. And uh, there was a cholera outbreak in 1832 that affected the workers, correct? Right. There's debate about how many people that really killed, because mm -hmm. if you just look at newspaper articles, the articles may be talking about the same 12 or 20 people. Mm -hmm. And the fact that some people think that they were buried in the along the canal. Probably not true. One, because the hospital's not going to, the company's not going to pay to take them from the hospital all the way back to the canal to bury them, and also that would upset the integrity of the towpath and the berm to start digging holes and burying people. So that mm -hmm. part's probably not true. But it, cholera was a serious disease. Oh, it was a devastating disease. You could work. You could wake up in the morning and be perfectly fine and be dead by nightfall. Mm -hmm. That's how quickly it worked. And in and the Princeton area, there were, uh, was a makeshift hospital to help take care of them. Yeah, th this was a serious outbreak. I, I read somewhere yeah. that the Princeton Town Hall was converted into a yes. hospital just because there were so many yeah, victims. Mainly due to sanitary conditions. If there was, with, with all these people working together and sleeping together, everything it just spread like wildfire. What kind of conditions did they did the workers have when they well, were building the canal? Basically, if they could find a piece of wood or a, a tree or something to sleep under, they they didn't make villages to go for their workers because they're hopefully moving along quite quickly along the canal. And of course, the, the old story about same as building the railroads, uh, the the people who were making the money didn't care much about the people doing the work. Mm -hmm. and how much were they paid? Very small amounts, yeah. sometimes in alcohol. Uh, they were paid in alcohol? In addition to their well, meager pay. Hmm. I read the figure of a dollar a day. Do you think that's accurate? Probably. And about 12, 12, uh, 25 cents extra for a tree stump? That could be true. Mm -hmm. Those kind of numbers are the things we keep in our fact sheet. <laughs> Not necessarily in our head. <laughs> okay. And, and despite all of that, um, they managed to d dig the canal in four years. To me, that's impressive. That doesn't seem like a long time to me to build a a uh, 60 mile long canal and let's could you describe where the canal goes and also where the feeder canal is the canal went from Bordentown on the Delaware River to New Brunswick on the Raritan River connecting those two rivers hence its name mm -hmm. in order to supply water the workers also dug a 22 mile feeder canal parallel to the Delaware River to bring Delaware River water in 
to the summit, which is in Trenton, and then it could go and flow in both directions and fill the canal, and that is still the case today. Mm -hmm. We had a long uh, legal argument with Pennsylvania, who wasn't too happy with us taking 100 million gallons a day, which we still do, but Mm -hmm. that was adjudicated, and that's how it continues today. The feeder canal is the one that goes through along the coast uh, of the river. I would have thought that was another canal, like you could actually use that. Right, a lot of that. people do think that's another canal, and you can use it. And they did use it for some navigation, but its main, it was narrower and not as deep. Its main job was to bring water down to the... Once the canal was open, it was a big fanfare, right, in, the, in 1834 when they finally opened it? Yes, they had a, brought all kinds of dignitaries onto a boat and took a long trip one end from one end to the other and had big celebrations and people big were, party. People were cheering the whole way. So they say. Was that the last time? I wasn't around then. (laughs) That may have been the last time that the people of central New Jersey were just happy uh, for (laughs) a day. I would hope not. (laughs) Well, you have to realize the Erie Canal had opened in 1825. Mm -hmm. So the fact that canals were a big boost to your economy was well-known fact by that time, by 1834 when they opened this canal. So everybody knew it was going to be helpful and be a big boost to the economy. So it was a big event. Governor Vroom was uh, on the, in the party to, uh, to inaugurate it. They went all the way to New Brunswick, and they had a big dinner there. To, and I think they had a 21-gun salute with cannon. So it was a big deal. And when the canal was 150 years old, some people dressed as the governor and local <laughs> people and reenacted that. Yeah. Not the whole cruise, but some of it. So w- once the canal opened, how would you actually travel on the canal? Well, that's one of the unique things about the DNR Canal. There were no canal boats built specifically for it. Because it was part of the intercoastal waterway, any boat that could get to it could go through it as long as it wasn't bigger than the locks. And the locks were built large. They were 24 feet wide and 110 feet long. They had no height limitation because all the bridges would swing out of the way. And it was, it was seven feet deep when it was built, but it was opened up to eight feet back in the 1850s. So anybody who had a boat that would float, a sailing boat, because they didn't, had no height restriction, could go through the canal. Nor, it was a towpath canal. That means there was a towpath right next to the water. So you'd hire a, a couple mules, and they would pull you through. But steamboats came also early to mm-hmm. the DNR and were used either as steam tugs to pull boats or as they're on their own. Uh, there are stories of yachts coming through. If they might tie up in your town, you might get a tour by a, from mm-hmm. a liveried servant. They say that J.P. Morgan's yacht had a wood-burning fireplace and gold bathroom <laughs> fixtures. Nice. Now, we could have them again if the canal were reopened. They would just have to obey the speed limit. <laughs> what was the speed limit? Usually three to five miles per hour. Depending. I read somewhere that this was enforced by Telegraph. Telegraph came early to the DNR, the commercial telegraph, and could be used exactly for that, like radar. Mm-hmm. So if you left Griggstown at a certain time and that was recorded and sent on to the next lock and you got to the next lock too quickly, you could be fined for speeding because hmm. that could create a wake and or start to erode the banks. Hmm. Well, actually, the lock tenders and the bridge tenders were continuously talking to each other over the, over the wire because you, wanted to, you, you didn't want to slow the boat down because time is money. So if you just cleared, let's say, the Griggstown lock, which is about three-quarters of a mile away from the Griggstown bridge, he would telegraph down saying, I just cleared a a boat here, who should be down there in two minutes or three minutes. So he would open the bridge and prepare it for him, 
so the boat could continue on through without slowing down. Now these locks, they had how? <clears throat> excuse me, they had houses near them, right? Lock tenders' houses, and a lot of them are still there. Oh yes, they are. Um, and in fact, some of them have been occupied pretty recently, or are they even still occupied? Some are occupied, some are derelict, as they say in England, and some need a lot of help, a lot of work on them. We also have houses for the bridge tenders, it's like at Gla- um, Blackwell's Mills or Griggstown. The bridge tenders' house in Griggstown is now the headquarters and the visitor center for the Millstone Valley National Scenic Byway. Mm-hmm. So some are, are in use, but all, all but one belong to the state of New Jersey. There is one house in Trenton that owned by the city and leased. So now would the the owners of the canal build these houses and then situate a, an employee That's in right. them? Exactly. You know, part of your pay as a bridge tender or a lock tender was the ability to have the house. Uh, the last bridge tender to live there along the canal was Sander Fakiti, a Hungarian immigrant who worked on the canal and, lo- and was allowed to live there long after it closed and raised eight or nine children there without benefit of plumbing or electricity. Ooh. People remember that he used to stomp on grapes to make wine, <laughs> and he lived across the street from the artist Biff Hines, so there are a number of portraits of Sander. Hi everyone, just a few show notes and then back to our interview. I want to sincerely thank everyone who is listening to the show. As I was writing this, I saw we passed a thousand listens. That's not serial numbers, but it is a pretty good start for our little podcast, considering that it is not even about murder. So as usual, if you want to support the show, subscribe in iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to it on. And leave us a five-star review, which will help us get new listeners. And if you have any comments or questions or suggestions for future topics, please visit our Facebook page, which you can find by searching for Forgotten History or email us at ForgottenHistoryNJ at gmail.com. What did the canal boats look like? They were typical coal barge coming up from Pennsylvania. What, what, what was that boat like? How many people were on it? That kind of thing. Well, first of all, we call them canal boats. Barges were on the Erie Canal, but the anthracite canals, of which there are six, and that includes the Mars Canal, the Delaware Canal, is, is the Lehigh Canal. Is that offensive to the canalers to call it a barge? It absolutely <laughs> is to the captain whose vessel it is you're talking about. Oh. Now, if you were up in New York State on the Erie Canal, no, it wouldn't be offensive because they called their, their vessels barges. But it's the same type of boat. No, it's not really. Oh. It's a little bit different. Hmm. And the uh, captains down here call them boats because they are moving the, the cargo in this anthracite canal error. And they mm-hmm. were steering. Normally you think of barges as just being towed mm-hmm. or pushed. No, but he's partially right, yeah. because if you look at an Erie Canal boat, even though it's designed differently, and as I said, there were no boats designed specifically for the DNR Canal. It looks basically the same, but it's just a terminology of a different canal, a different place. They like the captains here, call them boats. Okay. So... And I forgot the question. I was asking you what the <laughs> <laughs> I was asking you what the boat the boat looks like. Well, as I say, any boat that could fit in the canal would come mm-hmm. through. There was none that was but designed just but for yeah, it. or your typical coal boat from the coal Pennsylvania. Coal boats usually would come from Pennsylvania, and they would be just long, a tiny room at one end for the family, the, hmm. the captain and his family, and then but most of the area would be filled by coal or, in some cases, stone or other heavy cargo. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess a big difference, let's say, if we're talking about an Erie Canal boat, barge you can, may have seen, they had a cabin in the front and the cabin in the back. Mm-hmm. These boats would have had a cabin just in the back, most likely, for mm-hmm. the family. Whereas in the Erie Canal, they would actually have two sets of mules, and one set could be in the, on the boat while the other one's pulling the boat, mm-hmm. and they would switch every six hours or so. Well, the Erie Canal's a lot longer, Sure, it's 360 miles. miles. How long would it take a barge? Uh, sorry, I've boat. said it again. How long would it take a boat traveling all the way up the entire length of the canal? So coming through the new, the main canal at 44 miles, uh-huh. it would probably take two days. Mm-hmm. And usually Kingston to Grigstown would be the, the stopping point for the overnight. Because normally the canal was closed after sunset. Now, I read another account, and you can tell me if this is an urban legend or not, <laughs> where... Sometimes the captains would want to press on through the night they to make their delivery quicker, but the mule drivers were paid the same no matter what, so they weren't necessarily on board with that. So they would intentionally, they, they would often have uh, groundings around the around bedtime. I haven't heard that. That's an interesting story. <laughs> Usually, the person tending the mule, of course, on a DNR, it could be different because if you are a sailboat coming through up the intercoastal waterway, you would have to hire a pair of mules mm-hmm. probably at, at Bordentown to pull you through. And then, so then it would be separate, but normally the mule tender was the employee of the captain. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there was no dispute there, otherwise they'd get a new employee very quickly. <laughs> uh, if you were gone for a long time, you would hang up your laundry. <laughs> you were lucky if you had your whole family with you. And normally it would be the young people who would walk with the mules. Not mm-hmm. because the mules didn't know the way, but in order to keep them going. If they saw some nice uh, bushes along the way, that would be a salad bar for them. They'd want to keep stopping to eat. Your job is to keep them moving. Mm-hmm. And that would almost always be young mm-hmm. Was this two-way traffic? I don't yep. know if that's a... Okay, that's so right who was in charge of, of managing that? Because uh, only one boat could go, obviously, uh, in any direction at any one time. There was an etiquette, depending on whether the boat was loaded or not, would have the right-of-way or not. Obviously, in a lock, you can only go one direction at a time. So that was, you queue up, and who's first goes through. Or unless you, they did have packet boats that brought uh, people through, like a, you know, like a bus, if you will. And they usually had the right-of-way, so they'd go to the front of the line because they were going as fast as they could. So, so there are rules, and not only were the rules, there was a long list of rules. And if you speeded, let's say, and you got caught at it, you might get a $5 fine. And back then, $5 was a lot of money. Yeah, for sure. And you would go in both directions in the main part of the canal. The canal was 75 feet wide. Boats could certainly pass. Mm-hmm. It was just in the locks where you would, could only go one at a time and through the bridges. Were there any great disasters of the canal that, that made the pages of history? Explosions or floods or uh, shipwrecks or anything like that? Not, well, you're not going to have that kind of thing on the canal. But, there uh, were accidents where canal boats and trolleys, say in Trenton, would have accidents. Oh, there's a great one that Bill McKelvey talks about in his book on the Delaware and Renton Canal uh, photographic history. And it takes place in Trenton. And in Trenton, where the rolling ironworks were, they had spits of the canal going into the ironworks and places like that. And they had sailing vessels that could make the turn and go in there. And, you know, a sailing vessel has a spar coming off the, the bow. Well, one came out one day, and the Tamden and Amboy Railroad was running right along the canal, and the spar went across the railroad tracks, oh. and here comes the train, and hits the spar of the boat, and, <laughs> and there's an accident. How many places can you have a collision between a train and a ship? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there's an interesting one there. And another 
strange story was a lot of yachts would use the inland waterway to get to Florida for the winter. And one guy left New York a tad too late. The canal was freezing in, and he had to hire a boat to go ahead of him and break up the ice, an icebreaker, and just constant trouble with the ice. And so that was probably the last time he ever left that late to go to Florida. (laughs) And they would uh, sell the ice from the canal in the wintertime, yes, correct? as well as from farm ponds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like at Howell Living History Farm, we actually experienced taking out the ice. Hmm. They let the public in on really cold weeks. So now when I talk about it in regard to the canal, I've actually harvested ice, so I know what it looks like and hmm. how it's done. The people who worked on the canal on the canal boats in the wintertime, they were out of work. Mm-hmm. So they would do whatever they could to make ends meet until the canal opened in the spring. Some of them chopped wood, you know, whatever they could get. And also children were on the move, so they weren't in school a lot of the time during the canal season. So they would sometimes be taught by mom in the little cabin at night. Mm-hmm. But otherwise they'd be busy walking with the mules. We often think of history, the history of America as constant progression. You have all this traffic on the canal. Mm-hmm. You have these mule tenders. You have these barge people, and they, they then have to stop overnight somewhere. Mm-hmm. And along the way, they're loading and unloading. So you have all these uh, a, a few communities that spring up uh, along the canal. What were some of those uh, communities? Lambertville certainly had mm-hmm. a lot of industry, as did New Brunswick and Trenton. Mm-hmm. Uh, industry that probably definitely grew up with the canal. Mm-hmm. Uh, businesses, lumber companies, brick brick-making, brickyards. Mm-hmm. There would be a lot of businesses who now could transport their product by canal instead of by wagon. It was mostly used to transport coal, mm-hmm. but during the Civil War, there was a huge demand for other types of cargo for the for the military, correct? Mm-hmm. And the military itself transported mm-hmm. on canal boats. Uh, Gunboats and things like that mm-hmm. would come down. And I, I read about an interesting conflict that came up because... The government wanted to build a road going from New York to Washington hmm. because that would enable troops to get down there quicker. Mm-hmm. The uh, that would have to go through New Jersey, but the New Jersey New Jersey would not cooperate because the people who owned the canal did not want that to happen. So that actually hurt the Union Army a little bit. This is from a book called The Delaware and Maritime Canal: History by Crawford Mark Madeira Jr. That was written in 1941, and here's what he said. He said, undoubtedly such action caused some delay in the arrival of men and supplies to the armies of Grant, Hooker, and Meade, as the facilities of the canal and railroad were doubtless insufficient to handle the extraordinary amount of freight that boosted upon them. Hmm. I had not heard of that about the road, but certainly the, the railroad was used and would be much faster than the boats. This, this is another interesting thing to me, is that the canal was owned by a company that controlled both the canal and the railroad. Right, it was called the Joint Companies. And that, isn't that kind of a conflict of interest Absolutely. for them to have both of them? Absolutely, it was quite the monopoly. <laughs> uh-huh. Actually, there was a lot, a lot of controversy right from the beginning of getting their charters and, and combining them in 1831 right up until the canal closing, because people thought it was a uh, monopoly, and it wasn't a monopoly. Mm-hmm. And maybe the reason they said that they couldn't have a road is because part of the charter said they can't build any competing operations within 10 miles of the canal. Mm-hmm. So that could have gone on. But they did try, They did bring a lot of heavy stuff through the canal for the Civil War, mm-hmm. and that was pretty quick passage. Yeah. In fact, the railroad was already installed by that period of time. The 1860s, the railroad was in good shape, so anything that had to be moved fast could go by railroad. Mm-hmm. So... By 
1873, I think the the canal is no longer profitable. In 1871, the canal was leased by the Pennsylvania Railroad for 999 years. Not because they wanted a canal especially, but they wanted the right-of-way, the entrance into industries. Hmm. Then they started charging more to ship on the canal, didn't maintain it as well, because, of course, they were the railroad. So it sounds like the reason that it became unprofitable wasn't necessarily because of any real commercial reason, but just because the company that owned it didn't care about it and they kind of wanted to let it fall into neglect. You have a choice. You can take your bicycle to work or you can drive, and you have to be there quickly. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? You're going to drive. Mm-hmm. So the technology of the canal really had become obsolete with the railroad after the Civil War really coming into their own into their own being. They could handle heavier co- uh, loads at that point. So mm-hmm. it was an obsolete technology. It's, it's kind of like today you, you would take the fastest technology and you'd use the turnpikes. Mm-hmm. Back then, the best technology was the canal. Mm-hmm. And even in the early 20s, when pleasure boating started to come in and pleasure boaters used the canal, even those tolls were really not enough to keep it going. And the charter said that if it did not operate for three consecutive years, it would become the property of the state of New Jersey. So when it closed in 1832, it did not reopen and then became part of the state. And what has the state used it for since, since then? Sometimes water is used for industry, and was early on before it became a park. Mm-hmm. In 1973-74, the canal became the DNR Canal State Park, overseen by three entities, the State Park System, the DNR Canal Commission, which is a land use organization, and the New Jersey Water Supply Authority, which sells the water to its customers. And I can see why you guys are canal buffs, because... It really is a fantastic place to go. You can walk. I mean, where else can you just walk 60 miles along a footpath? Mm-hmm. That's right. With and the water right next to you. Which and is to great. see it from the water is even better. We just had a successful fundraiser, a dinner cruise on the canal, but we had to go to the Lehigh Canal in eastern Pennsylvania because as yet we don't have a public boat ride. Um, if your listeners are interested in that, they can go to the DNR Canal website canalwatch.org and send us a note. You know, we think that the canal is abandoned and it's gone and it's not useful. It's probably just as useful today as it was when it was at its peak Mm -hmm. because not only the Water Authority came in, what now is the Water Authority, in 1944 because we needed water for the war industries in Bound Brook and in New Brunswick. And at that time, we were having a drought and the industries that had grown up there not getting the water they needed. So that's when they started re-establishing the canal to move the water. And as Linda said, they move 100 million gallons a day. So it's very important for that. And who buys that water today are local water companies that sell the water to people who live nearby. It's a state park. It's on the National Register of Historic Places. So it's a recreational area as, as well. And one of the nicest things when they created the state park, they created the DNR Canal Commission that controls the land around the canal. So the reason that there aren't high-rise apartments and things like that right on the canal is because of the commission. 
because it's on the re National Register, they're charged with keeping it look like it should, like it was historically to, to the greatest extent. So we really have a gem going through the state of New Jersey. If you were to fly over New Jersey, you'd see that swatch of land going right through our, our center. And it wouldn't be there if these organizations weren't created back in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, it sounds like a tremendous undertaking, but was there ever discussion of filling it in or anything like oh, that? Oh, yes, yes. They wanted to put a road on it because it was a right, you know, they had a right of way of course. Most canals have that same, our, our national canal, the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal, that's what they wanted to do with that, 184 miles from Washington, D.C. to Cumberland, Maryland. Unfortunately, they didn't do it. The parts of it were covered over by Route 1, right? Route 20, 129. A section of a little over a mile long, yes. Mm -hmm. And there's a section that's covered by Route 129 near along the light rail. That mm -hmm. part is gone, but the part under Route 1 is still flowing. So it's a secret canal flowing underneath Route 1. Well, people have told us that they've actually canoed under there. They must like spiders. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Hey, can you canoe all the way? Does that go all the way out into the Delaware? No. Okay. Kind of on a similar note, I remember, the, and I don't remember exactly how long ago this was, but I remember there was a pedestrian bridge built over mm -hmm. Route 1 uh, just near here in yeah, Lawrence. Absolutely. That made it, I guess, walkable for its entire length. It hadn't been walkable right, because that of that. Closed one of the two missing links. The other okay. one being along Route One, which is now a trail. But yes, people had to either walk down to the traffic light on Route One, or some people actually tried to run across Route One. So not a very yeah. good situation. So the pedestrian and bicycle bridge is a big, big help. Yeah, the DNR Canal Commission was charged with creating a master plan. And one of the first things in the master plan is making it continuous from New Brunswick all the way up to Bulls Island. The section that went down to Bordentown, of course, is under major highways now. But there are two or three miles that you can still walk, and there's a place you can walk to the side. One of the amazing things about this is that it is this beautiful park with lots of wildlife. Mm -hmm. You can go fishing there. I think they stock it with trout, correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's right in the middle of the most desolate suburban sprawl you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, in the this... most densely populated state. But when you're walking yeah. along the towpath, not in one of the three cities, it's just out in the open, just nature. I can only imagine that you've walked all the way from the upper reach to He's the lower biked, reach. Mm -hmm. We've boated some in kayaks, but mm -hmm. mainly walking. And, you know, that's one of the nice things about it. I mean, if you like to go out for a walk or, or a bike or walk your dog or what have you, it's so different from Bulls Island going down along the feeder and along the Delaware River. It changes. You go through the industrial city of Lambertville, what used to be, and you get down into the Trenton area. You're, you basically you literally have to walk on the city streets going through there, but you have to know where to go. And then you start coming up Route 1, and actually one of the quietest sections is coming up the main canal from Trenton along Route 1 up to where you talked about that bridge and up to uh, Port um, Mercer. Mercer, Port Mercer. And then you go through some golf courses, then you get up to Princeton. The nicest, greenest sections, I think, are from Kingston up through Grigstown and Blackwell's Mills. And you're following it all the way up to Zarapath, where the Millstone River comes into the Adelt the Raritan River. And then you come down to uh, Southbound Brook, where Linda was born years ago, and where you come down to, uh, it comes out all the way to New Brunswick. And it keeps changing as you go. And yeah. every day you go, it's a little different. And when he spoke about the scenic rural part between Grigstown and, and Millstone, or East Millstone, that's also basically the root of the national scenic byway, the Millstone Valley National Scenic Byway. So people are seeing a beautiful, peaceful part of New Jersey mm -hmm. as they go on Canal Road and River Road. Well, 
like you said, it's a hidden gem. I, I think a lot of people, even who live around here, don't even know about it. It's right here in our backyards. And people who, some people think, well, it's only the section that I'm walking. They mm-hmm. don't understand that it goes for 40 miles or 44 Connected. miles. Mm-hmm. And then, then, of course, the section on the Delaware. It's not just your neighborhood, but it's quite a long park. It's a 70-mile park. And you can also rent boats at certain locations you and can. take yes. a ride, uh, I guess, with a rowboat or a paddle boat, or is it... Kayaks and canoes. There are two liveries, one in Grigstown, one at Princeton Basin. But and here we have, I think, a case where you could argue that there was a little bit of regression because you used to be able to sail all the way down the intercoastal waterway, you know, all the way inland for mm-hmm. the most part. But now you have to go around Cape May, which is pretty dangerous. Mm-hmm. So right. we've, lo- we've lost something, the, the closure of the canal. Yes, yes. we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Cape Cod Canal is still open, and the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal mm-hmm. is still open. In fact, both of them were upgraded to sea-level canals, and they can take big ships. And yeah. the Cape May Canal, and the Point yeah. Pleasant Canal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there are little bits that are still open in New Jersey. Where can people go to find out more information about the canal? They can go to the State Park website, which is dandrcanal.com. Or to the Canal Watch website, where we have a lot of links to other groups. Okay. Is there anything that you guys want to talk about that I have not asked you about yet? It is our future hope to see a public boat ride for the residents of New Jersey and visitors to see the canal from the water, to learn about water quality, and to learn the history of the canal. And we are in, you know, we have discussed with the state. There are many state agencies involved, and we will continue to inquire about. All right, well, Bob and Linda, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. Forgotten History is a production of Community News Service, recorded in beautiful Lawrenceville, New Jersey. Our theme music is The Quiet Earth by Thomas Barandin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>